Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Did Ukraine pay for access to President Trump? We'll think through how the BBC's bombshell story reverberates here and in the Ukraine. Iranian-born filmmaker Baman Gobadi is in town. We'll talk with this great pioneer of Kurdish culture. And on Weekend Passport, one of Chicago's offerings to the world is house music. We'll find out about this weekend's house music festival. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. The BBC broke a pretty interesting story the other day. It was by Paul Wood, their Kiev correspondent, and it says that Donald Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, received a secret payment of at least $400,000 to fix talks between the Ukrainian president and President Trump. Mr. Cohen denies the allegation. The payment apparently was arranged by intermediaries acting for Ukraine's leader, Petro Poroshenko, and a story that would seem to get a lot of traction. Uh, It's got multiple sources, uh, and it seems to be credible in a lot of ways. We're going to talk about it with Eugene Bondarenko. He's a lecturer in the Slavic department at the University of Michigan. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you for having me. First of all, it might seem a little unusual to people that uh, the head of one state would have to pay to arrange a meeting with the head of another state. What is it about Ukraine that would make it have to pay? Well, it's a good question, and you're right. It is quite unusual. The solution that the Ukrainians came up to Trump not necessarily wanting to meet with him was one that is uh, very appropriate in the Ukrainian political context, which is if you can't get something done lawfully, you just pay to have it done by any means necessary. This, in my opinion, would fit right in to the MO of how business is conducted in Ukraine. Yeah, I was reading an article in the Kiev Post, and they said, well, you know, this is really what happens a lot of times in Ukraine. People pay for access in a kind of direct way. There's also some thoughts about how the Hillary Clinton campaign and Poroshenko's uh, helped with the Manafort investigation. They had essentially sided with Hillary Clinton. What What is the uh, political motivation that would kind of lend this story some weight? Well, I want to go back and clarify a little bit. I think uh, what this is more of an issue of is, you know, uh, just like I would say the vast majority of observers before the 2016 election, we were fairly sure that Hillary Clinton would win. Uh, and uh, therefore, it was, I think, more practical for President Poroshenko to try to forge closer ties with her. Now, of course, given the animosity between the Clinton and Trump campaigns, and it's put Poroshenko in a very uncomfortable situation when Clinton lost the election. In order to make up for that, he quickly needed to go on some kind of charm offensive to mend ties with an administration that was widely perceived to be pro-Russian, at least at the time. And uh, it seems that the administration was not as keen as Poroshenko would have liked. I mean, let's remember that it's not that Poroshenko had no access to the Trump administration. He had a meeting with Mike Pence that was scheduled, and there's, uh, at least from what I've read, there's nothing to indicate that that meeting was paid for. 
but to answer your question, the necessity of having this was at least to present the optics to Ukrainians that the United States is still supporting us. It's not selling us out to Russia. And that's a pretty desperate moment for Ukraine, I imagine. Uh, you want the U.S. on your side if you're against Russia. Absolutely. So I would say that Ukraine faces two existential threats right now. The first existential threat is, of course, the Russian invasion. Uh, I want to make it absolutely clear that with Russia's intention of controlling Ukraine through military means, if necessary, this is not something that's made up by propaganda machines. I mean, there, you know, there is a Russian occupation of Crimea going on. There is a Russian occupation of the Donbass. So uh, this is an existential threat that Ukraine faces. On the flip side, the second existential threat, which in my mind is no less serious, is the corruption, basically that is endemic to Ukrainian government. And that is that to, basically it is very difficult to get any serious business done in Ukraine without paying bribes, uh, without engaging in activities that are you know outside of the law. And, and Ukrainians are, themselves, public polling shows that they are quite fed up. For example, according to this recent IRI poll, about 17% of Ukrainians think that uh, the country is heading in the right direction, which is compared to 15% in 2013 on the eve of the revolution. Wow. To continue on with the story here, uh, so we've got uh, Poroshenko and his intermediaries give $400,000 to Michael Cohen. And then the story that the BBC tells from its sources is that Poroshenko goes to Washington and they don't really know what kind of meeting they're going to get. They're on pins and needles the whole time. And he has details about this that sound credible. Does, does this section of the story sound reasonable to you? Yeah, it would certainly fit with what we saw uh, during the meeting. So uh, I don't know if you recall, but uh, one of the things that really, really stuck out to a lot of observers was that Poroshenko, after the meeting, held what appeared to be a very haphazard press conference. It was literally a wooden table set up outside of the White House with some microphones. And uh, he was answering questions that you know were probably pre-planned, but we, we can't know that. And it certainly did not feel like uh, an official visit where, you know, he had been invited and welcomed by the uh, ruling elite of the United States. This also has to do with the erratic and unpredictable nature of Mr. Trump's governing style. He, you know, has been known to change his mind at the last minute. He has been known to make contradictory statements just days apart. And I, I think Poroshenko feared this because it would have been a major embarrassment had he shown up to Washington and then not had a chance at all to meet the president. I'm talking with Eugene Bondarenko, a lecturer in the Slavic Department at the University of Michigan, and we're discussing the story that the BBC broke the other day that uh, says that Donald Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, received a secret payment of $400,000 to fix talks between the Ukrainian president and President Trump. Mr. Cohen denies the allegation. The BBC story says that there is uh, no reason to believe that President Trump had any knowledge of the payment. Um, and then we're walking through kind of the circumstances there. Um, one of the interesting things is that a week after the the meeting between President Trump and President Poroshenko, the Ukrainians closed down their cooperation with the Mueller investigation. What does this say to you? So uh, my understanding is that it hasn't been proven in my understanding that this is actually what happened. Uh, it would certainly be very unfortunate if that is the case. I think that would once again be Poroshenko betting on the wrong uh, candidate. I mean, 
Uh, it's no secret that Trump is embattled, uh, that his administration is facing various accusations ranging from bribery to collusion with Russia. I think it would be a politically deftone uh, move to really put all his eggs in the Trump basket, if you will. But the implication is that he sat there and cut a deal with Trump and, and Trump asked him probably to stop helping the Mueller investigation. Yes, certainly. And like I said, if that was truly the if that if that is the case, and I, I don't know, I'm not trying to contradict this. I just I my understanding is that this hasn't actually been proven. But yes, if this if presuming that this was indeed the case, this is a very um, poorly thought out decision by uh, President Poroshenko. The other outcome of the meeting seems to have been uh, some some anti-tank missiles that the United States sent to Ukraine. Is this something that looks bad in retrospect here? From the American point of view or from the Ukrainian point of view? Well, if you're looking at this and saying, "Well, this is not a; these are not corrupt deals," from a corruption point of view, <laughs> didn't somebody make a deal? Somebody paid a lot of money and got weapons for it uh, in the end. So, I I think that the javelin anti tank missiles and also there was a anti material sniper rifle that was also shipped, and perhaps at the same time or a little earlier, I, I don't quite recall the details. But this is something that Ukraine has been asking for from from day one of the Russian invasion. This was the case uh, under the Obama administration. This was the case throughout the election. This was the case after Trump got elected. This has been a consistent refrain from the Ukrainian government. And but uh, the, but the idea that they get it after they pay to get access and stop looking into the Mueller investigation would be bad. Yes, that would that would be bad. But let me kind of uh, frame that uh, for you. Is uh, the fact is is that the United States and uh, uh, a few other countries have been increasingly willing to aid Ukraine. You know, negotiations over the Donbass, over Crimea, have not been conducted in good faith by Moscow. And therefore, you know, the it, it is reasonable for Ukraine to ask for weapons to uh, defend itself. Yes, the optics of the timing of the deal are very bad. But given that the missiles, the Javelin missiles, have been something that has been on, let's say, Ukraine's wish list since early 2014, it might be a big jump to say that this was necessarily part of the alleged Mueller deal. One of the things that is in the story by uh, um, on the BBC story is that um, Poroshenko's inner circle was shocked by how dirty the whole arrangement with Michael Cohen was. Um, you, you were talking about how Ukrainians, this is kind of a common way of doing business, but they were shocked at the way it operates now in, with the Trump administration. Uh, does that ring as a, a credible thing here? He seems to have, um, Paul Wood, the reporter, uh, uh, inside access to people in the Poroshenko administration who were close to this thing and were disgusted by it. The Ukrainian elite... Right, the ruling elite—they are well traveled. Um, they're uh, good. Uh, many of them have been in the West and uh, uh, other places abroad for extended periods of time, and they understand that the rules by which people play in Ukraine and the rules by which people play in, say, the EU and the US are different. Uh, I think what shocked them was that you know they knew that they knew this game. Uh, they they were very familiar with this feeling of having to pay their way in. And that's not how, at least with regards to Ukraine, that's not how business in the United States has been conducted in the past. So I, I think that that 
shock might be genuine. That doesn't place like a moral value on uh, the actions of the Poroshenko administration or the Trump administration, but I think the shock was probably genuine. I'm talking with Eugene Bondarenko. He's a lecturer in the Slavic Department at the University of Michigan, and we're talking about the BBC's story that uh, Ukrainian emissaries paid for access to President Trump and uh, for the Ukrainian president. Coming up in a few minutes, we'll be talking about Iranian uh, film and uh, Kurdish film with Milos Talek, our film contributor. Uh, I wanted to play a cut here from a Ukrainian politician and the current prosecutor general of Ukraine, uh, kind of the anti-corruption guy. He's Yuri Lutschenko, and he and all the Ukrainian authorities deny the story. The, the Michael Cohen denies the story. Everybody up and down denies the story. And here is what he had to say, the Ukrainian uh, prosecutor general. Мені дуже шкода, що останнім часом навіть дуже солідні західні видання не користуються принципом збалансованої інформації. It's such a shame that recently even solid Western media outlets don't adhere to the principles of balance and refuse to see the point of view of their subjects. With regards to the meeting between Poroshenko and Mr. Trump, the president's administration has already denied these claims. The BBC's information is unreliable. The president doesn't finance state visits. With regards to us freezing the investigation into Paul Manafort, which is also taken off in American and now British media, that's also detached from reality. Well, when you hear that, it sounds like there's absolutely no way that certainly this person is going to look into this. There's no one on the Ukrainian side who would, who would question this or investigate it. Yeah, and I, I think that that's the problem, is that uh, Mr. Lutsenko has a checkered past. Uh, under the Yanukovych regime, he was imprisoned for trumped-up charges, and he was uh, eventually released. But he is largely seen as Poroshenko's right-hand man. He is the uh, general prosecutor, which is a post similar to our attorney general. And he really has been working to insulate Mr. Poroshenko from any kind of anti-corruption uh, efforts. So while he may be fighting corruption in some ways, uh, the issue is, is that unless you treat everyone as equals and make sure that nobody is going under the table and making shady deals, let's put it that way, it's not really a fight against corruption. It's a selective implementation of justice. Now, whether there is anybody in Ukraine who will jump on this investigation and try to take this further is a good question. I mean, I, there are very good investigative journalists in Ukraine. There are many professionals and many people who love their country and want to see real change. Uh, and I think that those people will be interested in, in investigating this. I don't think Mr. Lutsenko is one of these people, though. On the U.S. side, this story, it got some coverage in the U.S. press, but, uh, you know, really considering how sensational it is, not a lot. And the only person who would be interested is Robert Mueller, I would guess. That's probably correct. I think in the grand scheme of things, with everything that is happening in the political arena, domestic political arena in the United States, uh, $400,000 payment to Michael Cohen, who has already been in, uh, accused of receiving multiple such payments, is not really a fresh news item. It is simply adding to an old news item. Uh, I do think Robert Mueller would be very interested in this. I, I do hope that 
he looks into it because I think that uh, the Mueller investigation is actually Ukraine's best chance at getting a clear answer as to what happened with this as well. Because I, I think Mueller is much better positioned than any investigative journalist or even any rogue prosecutor in Ukraine to uh, actually get to the bottom of this. What do you make of the whole corruption um milieu coming to the United States. Does that feel real to you? Yes. Um, So at a high level of government, yes, it feels eerily reminiscent of Ukraine. Um, I don't think that we're anywhere near the level of endemic corruption that Ukraine experiences, but I think we are heading in that direction, not irreversibly, but uh, certainly among in Ukrainian emigre circles, uh, this has been something that's pointed out is that uh, you know, sometimes there's a bitter joke that, you know, hey, we know how to work in this system. We're, we're going to thrive. But at the same time, I do see that the United States has slipped backwards somewhat in its commitment to enforcing the rule of law. Eugene Bondarenko is a lecturer in the Slavic Department at the University of Michigan. We've been talking about the BBC story that broke the other day. It was by Paul Wood, and it says that Donald Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, received a secret payment of $400,000 to fix talks between the Ukrainian president and President Trump, and there were uh, implications and outcomes of that. Thanks a lot for joining us, Eugene, and talking about the situation. Thank you very much for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll have our film contributor, Milo Stalik, and we'll talk with the Iranian filmmaker, Baman Gobadi. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview from WBEZ. That music is from the film No One Knows About Persian Cats, a 2009 movie about the underground rock scene in Iran. Our film contributor Milos Stalik is here. Good to see you, Milos. Hey, Jerome. Great to be here. Uh, Northwestern is doing something interesting this week with uh, Iranian cinema. Yeah, I guess you could call it a retrospective or more accurately, series of discussions look at the work of uh, Bahman Gobadi, who's a major Iranian filmmaker. It's called Life on the Border, the Cinema of Bahman Gobadi. Uh, Gobadi is famous for his 
first and second film, Turtles Can Fly and Time for Drunken Horses, which was his first feature. And tonight they're screening a, a film which is kind of a departure from his earlier work called No One Knows About Persian Cats, which is, as you said, a film about the underground music scene, band music scene in Iran. Well, it's great to have Baman Gobadi here and in the studio with us. Nice to meet you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Nice to meet you. Too. And if uh, he needs a little help with translation, <laughs> Professor Hamid Nafisi is here and he'll join us as well. Uh, he's the uh, communications professor at Northwestern and he is the author of a four-volume social history of Iranian cinema. Great to see you, Hamid. Nice to be with you again. Um, tell us... Um, a little about uh, the work of Bam and Gobadi here and, and where uh, the, it, it comes out of uh, an interesting spot. Well, I think, in, you know, the, the title, Cinema of the Border, in a way, is instructive because Bahman was born in Kurdistan, which is straddles uh, Iraq, Iran, Turkey. Uh, his film, A Time for Dragon Horses, was the first film to really be, be in Kurdish and to be shown internationally. So in a way, he put the Kurdish culture experience in a way on the map and that was a large part of his personal concern in many of his films uh, and his cinema was was the, was unique in the sense that it, it, it employs a lot of children are in it a lot of non-actors shot very often under very difficult circumstances at least it, well in all of these films have difficult circumstances uh, characters who are under a lot of stress trying to survive, the whole role of family, the second film, Turtles Can Fly, is in a refugee camp. So these are serious issues and serious, uh, serious themes. Um, and at the same time, it's very emotional cinema that he brings to it, which is shot very much almost in a documentary style. Uh, the film that's showing tonight, No One Knows About Persian Cats. Um, Baman, tell us about making that film, because it sounds like uh, you didn't want to make that film and kind of fell into making that film. Yeah. Th that time, um, I tried to, to, to make the other project, but I tried to get the permission from the government. So they didn't get, gave me the, the permission. And I, I already started the pre-production, and we pay a lot of... Um, the money for the for the group for the staff, and I I knew that I I should leave Iran, and no more safe for me because the one more film before this project it was Half Moon and they they put it in the band and I couldn't release it in Iran so no more good life in Iran and then I said okay just just make something mm -hmm. and that's time I wanted to be to record my music and I tried to get the uh, permission again so they didn't gave gave me the permission so I go to the underground studios for music and then I saw the the great young artists in Iran and I learned maybe we can start the underground movies, underground cinema. So I got the idea from the young and uh, new generation in Iran and then um, in two weeks I made uh, No One Knows About Persian Cats and I left Iran with the main characters because the, the story was true about two couple and then mm. after 14 days the so next night they fly to London. Wow. So, so the story was basically, it's fictionalized but true, and the people in it are non-acting musicians. They, want, they want to leave Iran. They want yeah. to leave Iran. Yeah. yeah. I think the, the interesting point here, though, is... Nafizi from Northwestern? Yes, is that um, um, all filmmakers in Iran, in order to make film, they have to seek permission first from the government uh, for script, for uh, production permit, for... Um, 
the final cut, you know, all, there are many stages of, of approval for a film. And so not being able to get a permission automatically turns you into making an underground film if you continue to want to make films. So that's one of the definitions of underground film. Exactly. Uh, unlike America in, in the U.S., underground film usually refers to countercultural uh, um, uh, films or films that are uh, against the dominant style of Hollywood or, or other cinemas. While in the case of Iran, I think underground film means a film made without permission and without supervision by government, right? Yes, it's right. It's true. Yeah, I wanted to say something about um, your first two films. They were um, they were about Kurdish culture. They promoted a love of Kurdish culture in a way. And uh, how did those go over with the with the authorities? You had to get permission for those, or even in the in the Iranian film world. What, what, how did those resonate there? They're not new. You film like film like Do you mean the, the no one uh, the, the the turtles can fly? Right. Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. The early Kurdish films. So those on film like Avaliyat. We must do the film here in generation that in turtles and yeah. so forth. Rajbev Korda Hasir. But in Bujavis gave them Sakhbuya. Yeah. So more difficult than the other Iranian filmmakers to get the permission. And I remember uh, for a time for Drunken Horses, two years I fought, I fight with the with the Ministry of Culture just to get the permission. And then it, 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 I didn't tell them I want to shoot it with the Kurdish language. So when I when they saw the film, <laughs> they they pushed me. You should put one character and in the beginning of the film. So when you see the film in the beginning, I'm asking my character with the English, but it was not in the, in the, in the, in the, in the script. So I, I made it with the one page, all of my movies. It was not script, but I didn't have this idea to make an interview with the, one of the main character with the Persian language. So I did just because of Iranian regime. And I remember, I want to tell you the one story, and they showed in one theater, maybe two theater, I cannot remember well. So I went to the TV, Iranian TV, and I said, I need the advertising. I want to pay that. And the one Muslim guy, he was a, he was a director of the Sansur, in TV, he said, "No, no, no more, no more um, permission for you because your film talking about drunken." Uh, and then I said, "Yeah, this is drunken, but it's not about the human; it's about the horses." Horse. <laughs> I said, "Yeah, okay, good, good, good. I will give you the permission." And they gave me the permission for that. You know, it's interesting because you started your career in an odd way, your film career, because you started just by making Super Eight films. We don't know those films, but, and those were films that were being made in Tehran, where you were at the time, right? And then you decided to go back to Kurdistan? No, I, I was in Kurdistan. I was 17, and mm-hmm. um, I, I, honestly, I, I never I was not in love with the cinema. Never, mm-hmm. still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had the painful time all of my, my Why? life. Why were you not in love but with it? Beca- because, you know, if you live in Iran, if you be Kurd, if they call you, you are Sunni religion, but I'm not the religion person, mm-hmm. so it was difficult to get the permission. It's so hard to make a movie in Kurdistan, as you said, it was the first Kurdish language international movie to find the assistant manager production. I did everything with my mom, with my sister, with my brother. So one movie, two movies. So you spend a lot of time. And I never didn't have the chair to sit on the location and say action. Never. I didn't have that. So the, the, and as uh, Mr. Hamid Nafisi said, for everything, you should have a permission. I finished the movie with the permission. But if you want to send it to the festival, you should have a permission also. They keep 
fill your 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 soul about making movie and it was a huge wall in front of me and I didn't know I have to make a storyboard for my script but I made a storyboard where I have to go in the garden of the Ministry of Culture to see him and get him and tell him please give me give me the permission all all the time I was thinking about make a storyboard how I find the <laughs> Ministry of Culture so that that was the problem and then um, the, the other thing is they have a problem with the Kurd. Kurd. The, the Iranian regime have a problem with this kind of religion like Sunni. So I don't know how I made this film. At the same time, I had the problem with my people also. When I go back to Kurdistan, many intellectual people ask me, you are, you are, uh, the, you are with the regime. I said, no. And they said, how you made the Kurdish film? I said, I, I fight with this. They said, no, 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 no. They, they, they will tell you. You were under suspicion. Yeah. yeah. So I was, in the, I was on the border. Both ends, the, yeah. the right side was Iranian mm. and Persian and mm. the other people and the left side, the Kurd. So I didn't know how I can work. Still, I'm like that. And yesterday, mm. the Nafisi was there and one Kurdish woman asking me why you're the title is not the Kurd. I said, everything is Kurd in the movie. Subject, location, music. And he, he, she judged me. And I said, hey, I live in exile. How you can, you can let yourself to well, ask me like exactly that? this is exactly one of the problems with exiles is that you, you get criticized from both sides, no matter what you do, from those at home and those who are abroad. And you just have to do what you are doing. Yeah, make films. Did, were your films shown in Kurdish or in in, in Persian in, in 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 the Kurdish area? No, just what was the response of the Kurds to your films? The, the, the biggest problem I have uh, in, in my life is I never I couldn't show my movies in Kurdistan. We have we are forty forty five million people, and all Kurdistan in four countries. I think we have like maybe five or six theaters yeah. for 45 wow. million. That is a tragedy, yeah. And I didn't see my people to go and watching my movie, but I had this experience for a time for Drunken Horses, maybe for one week, two weeks in Sanandaj, capital of Kurdistan in Iran. And Teltas Can Fly also. They show it, Iranian regime let the film to show it just maybe for one month in one or two theater. Two of two of them, but the other movie, Persian Cats, Half Moon, they, they never, they didn't give me the permission. How was the, re- the response to in Sanandaj to the films? It that was were huge market, yeah. But in Turkey was uh, an amazing because in Turkey was the first Kurdish movie they show it, and they didn't know that because they bought the copy from the French uh, <laughs> French <laughs> distribution, and they thought this is a this is a French movie. But after one week, some uh, Turkish. People writing, ah, oh, this is a Kurdish film, and they take out uh, the film from the screening, and then it was a big fighting, and then they they let the film again open. It was big, big uh, things S- that so, time. So, since the time of Drunken Horses, have you seen other Kurdish filmmakers come up? And, yeah, yeah. All, all of them. They, we have a lot of filmmakers now, yeah. and they, 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 many of them was my assistant during my films, yeah. and they're, they're making movie, and I, I cannot get them to my project again like the assistant <laughs> and you, I should make a new assistant that, that's the problem I'm telling you so uh, but in, in, I remember in always many countries I think is like that the parents uh, want to push the kids to be doctor or engineer and I remember I painting on the, on the table and my father said I told you you should be the doctor what are you doing this I said I like to paint the Bahman. painting could be the, like the new uh, job Bahman, you said 
Sorry. We're talking with filmmaker Baman Gobadi and his film uh, No One Knows About Persian Cats is at Northwestern University tonight. You can see a after talk with them. And um, go ahead, Hamid Devisi. Uh, I was going to ask you, uh, I think at one point uh, you said somewhere that in the from the alley in which you were born, 13 filmmakers have emerged. Wow. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about yeah. that? And why is filmmaking such a... Uh, an important uh, thing for young Kurds. Yeah, I think because it's not easy in Iran to be to to get to go to the university, especially in Tehran, when you are Kurd and when they call you, you are Sunni. And it was maybe I was like after maybe thirty five years, thirty six years during the Iranian regime, maybe just ten or maybe fifteen Kurdish people they let them to study art and for I, I studied in the t t television university so um, but I didn't learn anything anything uh, so uh, b b when, when I became successful and the people know me on the street and and they they publish my name on the newspapers radio something like that so all of the neighborhood they look at me and my friends come I we want to be filmmaker my sister my brother and then now I can tell you we have more than 1000 filmmakers just in Kurdistan in Iran in Iraq in Turkey in Syria so became like one of but the problem is they don't have any any small support like the foundation any government like Syria, Turkey, they don't support any Kurdish movie, and Iranian government also. Now, you, you have a website where you can watch a lot of your films and pay some money, and you, you support some of the filmmakers that, that you're trying to support young filmmakers who are Kurdish. Yeah, I tried. Yeah, I, I, the MIJ Films, um, I opened this website, and when I was in Erbil, North Iraq, when I left Iran in 2009, I wanted to find my new home, and I decided to stay in Kurdistan, north of Iraq. So I, I had a lot of times, and I decided to go to the camps. I choose uh, four camps, and I choose 200 kids to be filmmaker. And I bought more than 200 ca photographic camera, and I, I showed them how they can be photographer. And they they made some short film, and the short film was great. And I choose nine of them, and I made the one like feature film live on the border. So they show it in Berlin and few film festival. And then now they made the second one live on the road. Now the the ice is gone, and they want to go back home, but no more home in there. They made the f few short film and became like the feature film. Well, that's super cool. Yeah, what's the the website is what uh, that people could look at this for? It's M I J Films. M I J Films. Yeah. And what did you find uh, was transformative in when when you let these kids with cameras? How important was representation for them? What did it do for them? What they you know once they got cameras, once they learned. How to how to use cameras? What did it do for their self-image, for for their education? So I bring seven uh, great filmmakers from Iran, Kurd Kurdish people. But the problem is my Kurdish is Sorani, and that's Kurdish because they were from Syria, was Badini and Kermanji. It's so different. So it was okay, but the kid was so hungry, and they learn a lot. And now uh, they, they they learn sound. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they learn everything about cinema, editing, sound, mm -hmm. uh, you know, acting, every kind of things is the basic things mm -hmm. I, I taught them. Mm -hmm. But and they made the film about themselves. Mm -hmm. They didn't write any story from outside of their life. 
everything is so super real, especially live on the border. I, I think it's in the website. Yeah, the, you, the people can watch it. You can see Baman Gobadi, the Iranian Kurdish filmmaker. Tonight he'll be at the showing of No One Knows About Persian Cats, the 2009 film about the underground rock scene in Iran. Thanks a lot for joining us. It's been great to meet you, and I hope people check out your website as well, where <laughs> they can you. see lots more of your films. Thank you so much, Guy. Thank you. And Professor Hamid Nafisi has been here from Northwestern. His four-volume Social History of Iranian Cinema is a landmark um, catalog of Iranian cinema. And film contributor Milos Stalik, great to see you as always. Great to be here, John. Thank you. Thank you very much. Coming up after the break, we're going to have Weekend Passport, and we'll talk about the Chicago House Music Festival. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. They keep us moving. They keep us moving. They keep us This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Nari Safavi, one of the founders of the Pasfarda Arts and Cultural Exchange, is here as always to give us suggestions on how to have international fun. Nice to see you, Nari. Uh, good day, Jerome. It's great to be here again. Well, we're going to have a chat about one thing, one thing this weekend. Absolutely. This is going to be about uh, one of the legacies of Chicago, you know, uh, the house music that was really an art that was invented in Chicago, and it's become a global phenomenon. And uh, and and somebody in Chicago is really helping us reclaim that uh, tradition over here. David Chavez has really put together a new institution about house music in Chicago, and we're going to hear about that. David Chavez is program coordinator of the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events. Thanks a lot for joining us, David. Thanks for inviting me. And thank you for all these fine, fun, free things that we get to do every summer at, at, at your benefit. It's absolutely my pleasure. Now, you've been fighting for a while to have this house music festival. You've been growing it from a party to a festival now. Uh, tell us the story of that. What happened? Um, so I think, you know... It's it's been known internationally and, and locally that you know houses is, is uh, from Chicago, um, and I think that um, while we've done some things in the past as a department to acknowledge that and to program some of those things, um, I think it hasn't been until recent years that we've actually made a concerted effort to um, make it a an event, you know, and celebrate it and acknowledge it in that way. Um, our first sort of big. A push was um, for Frankie Knuckles. Um, when he passed away, we did a tribute at Cloudgate um, very spontaneously, and it drew about 13,000 people. That's right. That's um, good. Like yeah. a Wednesday after work. Um, and I think that is what sparked a lot of more interest internally. And um, so from there, we sort of did a, a, a large three-month-long exhibition at the Cultural Center, um, documenting as much as we could, as, as accurately as we could, um, the history of Chicago house music. Um, and that drew about 80,000 people over three months. Um, and from there, we just sort of started to do these one-off sort of house music parties at Millennium Park. 
And um, this is the first year we've gotten the green light to really make it an official city festival. That is so cool. Oh, this is really a, a fantastic development. Uh, I got the bug back in the 80s also when I uh, used to hear Jack Your Body and things like that by uh, J.M. Silk. And then it just seems like that kind of a thing disappeared from what was available to me musically until I started in the 90s to go to places like London and Barcelona and, you know, and go to the nightclubs over there and hear Jack Your Body. <laughs> and, <laughs> I don't like, and people would say, oh, you're from Chicago. <laughs> like, yeah. This is where it's all coming from. And we kind of, and it was being celebrated much more in Europe, in the, in the underground clubs over there than it was here in Chicago. And, uh, and it's really great. And I always thought that this thing had a huge potential to actually not just be a Chicago thing, but something that can bring the globe, the world back to Chicago. And it's been, it's great that you guys are doing it. And I think it has enormous potential to be a global draw. I agree. I agree. I agree. I think a lot of people internationally want to come to Chicago to yeah. celebrate this music in its birthplace. Yeah. That's super cool. Uh, do, d- tell us about the lineup that you've put together here. It's a, it's an all-day affair on Saturday starting at 1 o'clock, going until 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock. You're going to really give it a go here. Yes. So we have uh, four stages of music starting at 1 p.m. Um, and we try to do a, a, a variety of kinds of house music from deep house to afro latin house to um footwork um chicago house and things like that and we also have a live band performing uh, our headliner for the main stage is uh louis vega and elements of life band which is um he's a grammy winning artist um and it's his chicago debut um considered one of the foremost biggest house music producers and djs in the world um and so we're very honored and proud to bring that back home to us right and and he's our he's a guest in our house wow. so to speak you've got a vinyl records fair going on in the chase promenade yes so we have 10 vendors selling a variety of vinyl records from jazz blues soul house music that's uh, great <laughs> yeah you know yeah, it's been yeah, a real fantastic been a real resurgence in, in in vinyl culture you know i think the the quality of the sound is undeniable and i think a lot of people are really responding again to that um and that's been a huge um a huge motivator for people to you know buy more records <laughs> wonderful uh what are some of the things that uh you were really looking forward to you know tell us about like the, what it yeah. took to book some of these acts and you're really looking forward to um, so, yeah, I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of folks that, that I wanted to bring in were unavailable. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a whole cycle that happens, but, you know, we always had an emphasis on, on celebrating and promoting our local talent. Right. Um, the last two iterations of this at Chicago House Party have been 100% local DJs from Wonderful. Chicago. Um, and still the majority this year are local and, mm-hmm. um. You know, some of the international artists uh, or the national artists that are coming in that are also internationally renowned are Jose Marquez, who just did a whole remix project mm-hmm. with Fania Records. Yeah. Um, Adam Gibbons from Boston, who is considered one of the top um, uh, Af- Afro House DJs um, out there right now. Um, and we have um, some some fierce ladies in the house DJing from New York, Sabine Blazin and uh, Donna Edwards. Right. And locally, Celeste, uh, the DJ, is going to be here as well. So we want to represent... More women are getting more, into this. Yeah, I think I think they've always have been. I think that the industry hasn't really recognized them the same way. And so we want to make a, an effort to 
to do that, you know, because okay. they are part of the scene. And, you know, one of the oldest DJs in Chicago, uh, Lori Branch, is, is a woman. And, yeah. you know, people, I think, forget that. That's right. <laughs> we're talking with David Chavez. He is with the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events. And we're talking about the Chicago House Music Festival, which is Saturday from 1 to 9. And you've been also been doing some adjacent uh, panels and workshops, which started yesterday. And you had one on the female DJ perspective. Yes. And today you've got um, other ones. Uh, a house. You've got a workshop. You've got a conversation with Fab Five Freddy and a footworking dance demonstration. So there, And, and then, then there's Ron Trent. You're having an after-set network celebration with Ron Trent. That's cool. Yes. So, yeah, I think, in the, you know, from the beginning, we wanted to make this a cultural event instead of just a festival. You know, we want to cultivate a new generation of, of house connoisseur and house fan, and this is uh, the way to sort of bring that in, the educational piece, um, the house dance component, which I think it's forgotten a lot. Um, and just sort of the intersection of art, music, and culture, um, you know, is, is very important to the scene. It's a community and it's a, it's, um, it's a culture, right? And I think um, the more we can reinforce that through all these different um, events and, and panel discussions and workshops and um, DJ sets, the, the more people sort of get what this is. Yeah, you're packing a lot into one day. It's, <laughs> and and I think that, you know, in, in term, if I hope that you have plans to expand this, to make it a two-day or a three-day event and at least to uh, work with the availability of the artists. And, and that will also make it easier for global artists to be able to come to Chicago and maybe stay for a day or so, a yeah, couple of days. For sure. We've been very, you know, conscientious about, growing it naturally in an yeah. organic sort of way. So, yeah. you know, every year we sort of expand the footprint, add more stages, add more panel discussions, more elements. And so I think just the natural progression is that it will get to that point where it is sort of like the blues fest or the jazz fest or the gospel fest. And yeah. that's the whole idea is to make it, you know, um, as relevant um, and as celebratory and, and acknowledge yeah. it acknowledging um, the music as those other festivals. So those are multi-day festivals. Yeah, and I really encourage people from Chicago to go and really realize what a global footprint we have in this sector. Yeah. And it's uh, we, we don't recognize it ourselves. We don't appreciate it right. enough ourselves. And a lot of the DJs from Chicago like are known internationally. Yeah. You know, Ron Carroll, Paul Johnson. Um, there's all these people, Ron Trent, you know, that like go around the world and, and are celebrated. And so it's good to bring them in on stage for us. Who exactly is the house music culture, would you say, right now in Chicago? And is it, um, I don't know, is it segregated? Is it something that is, you know, you know not a lot of middle-aged white people out there? <laughs> um, you know, because it's been around for so long, over 35 years, I think there's there's a lot of, you know, it's, it's everyone, really. Um, it is... It is in the blood of Chicago's history, right? It's it's part of our of our cultural heritage, and um, you know everyone makes this up. and And there's different parties around the city all the time. There's there's different kinds of house music that happen, um, and you know when you come to the house festival, you'll sort of see that play out, right? You'll see different generations right. of people, different. Um, ethnicities sort of all coming together. You see middle-aged white guys and, and <laughs> yeah. you know, um, grandparents even. You know, you see um, Korean tourists and you see, you know, Latinos. And, and so it's it's all over the place. And I think that's, that is the culture of, you know, of of the music. 
That's wonderful. And it, it definitely, when you travel around the world, it is, you see a lot of middle-aged white guys coming <laughs> to these things. So, so it's, it's, I, I don't think it's, uh, it, the perception of this artwork is not as racialized in other parts of the world as we have it over here. Yeah, I mean, you know, the root of, of the music and the scene really came out of socioeconomic sort of time in the 80s yeah. where it was sort of an escape, you know. Yeah. It's more of a creativity of the masses. It's right. the people who are not trained musicians making music. That's really wh- how a big part of the world's perception of, what, of this art is. Yeah, I think at the beginning it was a lot of sort of fidgeting around with drum machines and things right. like that and looping machines. And I think now you're seeing full-fledged bands you know you're seeing very sophisticated productions that are on par with you know anything that you'll see in in a commercial playlist i mean a lot of these artists like madonna are using house producers to produce their remixes you know yeah yeah well it's super cool that we have a chicago house music festival and thanks very much to david chavez program coordinator for the department of cultural affairs and special events for making it happen it is saturday from 1 till 10 and 1 to 9 1 to 9 and then you've got the events that are this afternoon and that's at the Chicago Cultural Center right and everything is free of charge everything is free that's the great thing about the, the kind of stuff you guys do over there it is yeah. amazing Nari Safavi I hope you have a fine Memorial Day weekend happy Memorial Weekend everyone And we'll be back with you on Tuesday. There's going to be a special program on Monday. And I'll be doing Bike the Drive this weekend, so that'll be super fun. I will see lots of people there. I'll be wearing the watermelon helmet, as I always do. (laughs) And um, you'll be hearing on Monday, during this hour, a um, documentary from the BBC called The Day Hope Died, Remembering Robert F. Kennedy. And on Tuesday, we'll be uh, chatting a bit about the outcome of Ireland's upcoming abortion referendum. Hope you can Join us next week for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.